So, Father, we come this morning. We are grateful um, as we've sung that your glory is what we are about. We come as those in great need as we've sung that as well. And we have great hope as we come that you have called us to come. You have invited us. You have promised that as we come, we anticipate that you will meet us. And give us exactly what we need in our singing and our praying and our giving and our confessing and our listening uh, that you would do that. That this would sustain us for this week. This would be our food. That, Father, you would protect us, that you would build us up so as we go out and we face enemies and we face barriers to walking with you, that your truth would demolish those, that it would inform and strengthen us to stand in the midst of those circumstances so that, Father, we would be those who follow you consistently by your grace. Open our eyes, our minds this morning as we read your word. Teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, I am continuing on. If you are here last week, we looked at 11 through 13 and And this morning, we're going to continue on the next few verses. These are familiar verses. If you've been around the church a while, you've probably memorized them or read them before. Both sections we're looking at and over the last few weeks as we have studied them in a Friday morning study, they've just become kind of new to me in this respect. And I have greatly enjoyed and and benefited from looking at them in the depth and, and richness that's there. This is a letter that's being written to exhort these Christians who are Jews and they're being tempted to walk away from the faith, to abandon the faith they embraced. And the author is writing in lots of different ways to to weave in challenges and exhortations to cause them to stand firm. And you'll see in this passage we're going to read this morning, we're going to read 11 through the end of the chapter, chapter 4, 11 through 16. You'll see several challenges, several exhortations. We're going to, to look at those this morning. We're going to focus on 14 through 16. This is the word of God. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I love stories that are about journeys. I'm a sucker for journey stories. And there's something I just about stories you read or you watch that are about a journey. A journey through challenges, enemies, barriers with some mission in mind, and then a returning to home. One of my favorite stories, journey stories, is a, is a book by C.S. Lewis called The Horse and His Boy. And I've read that numerous times, many times with my family, with my kids, as I've read through that. It's a story of a boy finding his true home. 
And, and my kids laugh because when we get to the point at which he finds his true home, spoiler alert, I'm not going to give this to you. When he finds his true home, I find myself crying. <laughs> and I'll cry as I read this story. Because there's something about a journey that just that is compelling for me to be able to get home. And in that particular story and other stories, there's always barriers and there's enemies. There's things that stand in the way that prevent that. But in the end, when you get there, it's all the more glorious. It's all the more wonderful. And the same is true for our lives as we are on this journey. That it's not just one barrier. It's not just one enemy that will attack us. It's multifaceted. There's many things that will come up against us that will affront us from our own flesh to the world around us to Satan himself that will prevent us, that will slow us down, that will stunt our growth, that will have this potential of keeping us from getting home. But the author, as he writes here, he has this in mind and he hits on several different sides, several different faces or facets of this issue of things that would slow them down, things that would prevent them from eventually getting home. And we see in this passage, it's, it's seen in this form, this, this challenge, this command, this call. Verse 11 and 14 and 16, let us. Three different times we have a, a clustering here of this call, this exhortation. Clustering to let us strive to enter this rest in verse 11. Let us strive to, let's hold on to our, let's hold fast to our confession in verse 14. And let us then with confidence draw near. Different aspects, different issues that they face. They were to give up on rest and understanding what it meant to strive. Their confession was waning. They were not instead drawing near. They were being drawn away. And we have this cluster where the author says, I want you to see these are the dangers that you face. These are the things that will draw you away, that will prevent you from enjoying the rest that God offers. And we see as we look into these exhortations that the author gives to them, we can see something about the condition of their hearts and their lives. We can see something about the condition of our own hearts and our own lives. That we so easily will give up on our profession of faith. We'll be led astray. We will drift away so easily. And yet all of these, as he approaches them, inform each other and help us understand ultimately what will prevent them, what will prevent us from enjoying this rest, the very presence of God. Last week we looked at that theme of rest from kind of beginning to end, not in an exhaustive way, but we saw that rest is a picture of God himself. It means to be in his presence, that he demonstrated for us. It was pictured in the land that Israel was to be given. It's invited to by Christ when he says to come unto him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. There's rest there. And it's pictured ultimately in the culmination. Eternity will enjoy that. And the author, as he challenged them and exhorts them last week, we looked at that he challenges them to strive to enter the rest by understanding the nature of unbelief. And he challenges them there just to look at Israel. This is what their unbelief looked like. And then he said to strive, we strive to enter that rest by understanding the nature of God's word and what it does in our lives and our great need. And we need to submit to it the living, active, penetrating word of God to allow it do its surgical work in our lives to address our hearts. So he motivates them. He wants them to see that as he moves on in 14 and 16. What we have here is really the means to do that. He says, I'm going to continue to challenge you, but I want you to see how is it that we're to maintain this? How do we keep moving forward? How do we enter into this rest? How is it that we will find our way home? 
And he gives him the means and he, he wraps it around. He frames the means around the person of Christ. And he gives us this picture of Christ as the great high priest. This model, this one who represents us. And he helps us understand there's different facets or aspects of the, the nature of this high priest that he wants us to see. Really throughout the book, we can see it in, in a, a simple fashion or a short fashion here in these few verses. He wants us to see, he wants his readers to see the transcendence and the greatness of Christ who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father in a position of authority. But he also wants them to understand, and we need to understand, that he's close He's near to us. He's sympathetic to our condition. He is like us. He is both God and he is man. The doctrinal truths of who Christ is are not just esoteric theoretical ideas. They are concrete realities that the church has sought to formulate and hold over the course of the ages. They're not just something to to know or to memorize the natures of Christ. It is to understand and to live out. And the author wants them. He needs them to see this. If you're going to sustain your walk, if you are not going to be led astray, if you're not going to be led from holding fast to this, then you must understand who he is. And it's in and through understanding who he is that we will receive the means that we need to stand firm. To hold fastly to our faith. This reality of who Christ is. And so the author wants them to know. The sympathetic and transcendent high priest. Who represents each one of us. Those who are his. Understands our weakness. He understands our conditions. And he provides for us the means in order to stand firm. In order to bring us home. So the imagery here, the author changes from rest, although it's in the backdrop. In verse 14, we see that we have now this great high priest. It's already been addressed a little bit earlier in chapter 2 and chapter 3. In fact, this is going to be a dominant theme up through chapter 10. It's a significant piece, this high priest of who as Christ represents. He takes on this picture. It's an Old Testament category. Another reason, by the way, to read your Bibles from beginning to end is if you understand the categories that the New Testament gives us, we have to read the Old Testament. If you understand the role of a high priest and what his what he was about, you need to read the Old Testament because the New Testament's going to talk about that. And so a category we have here is this high priest that Jesus represents this great high priest. The one who represents God. And as you go to the Old Testament, you see his role there. That the high priest there was a man. He was appointed by God. He was appointed to represent in two ways, in a bilateral kind of way. Man to God and God to man. And he would come into the Holy of Holies. He would represent man there in the very presence of God. And the author says you need to understand this. That Jesus is the great high priest. And this exhortation that comes, we see is that we need to hold fast our confession. We have the high priest who has ascended among the heavens. Among the heavens, he is there. He is at the right hand of God. It's The heavens here, it's not a geographical picture as it's a picture of authority. That Jesus' authoritative place enables us to hold a profession. In fact, our profession of faith is about him and who he is and what he has done. The author takes... It specifically sets two titles side by side in verse 14. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the man, the son of God, God. And we see the two natures of Christ represented there. God and man presented there. And the exhortation is to stand, to hold fast your confession. And we see behind that, right, the temptation that they were letting go. They were drifting away from that confession that they were making. The author says, hold on to that with your words and with your life. 
They need to be consistent with one another. And so we, we can only speculate as we read through the lens of Scripture, as we look at our own lives and we understand the command is there for a reason. But then the author goes on in 15 and 16 to describe the, the, the closeness of Christ with us, the, the, the likeness that he shares with us, the common ground that we have, and he sympathizes in our weaknesses. In verse 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see the emphasis there, right? We have a high priest who we do not have a high priest who is unable, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are. In every respect, he shares our ground. This humanity of Jesus we see present there. And what I want to do this morning, I want to talk about this sympathy that he has for us. The, the sympathetic sense in which he has entered into our human condition. He understands us and the benefit that we gain from that. The author says you need to see this and you understand who he is, his likeness, his awareness of our situation, and that will enable us to stand. Then I want to look at the means that he has given us to stand. And it comes through entering into his, his presence and enjoying him and finding there that he'll give us what we need. And then I want to look at the timeliness of this with one little warning in between here. First of all, this humanity of Jesus, his common experience with us, enables him to truly sympathize with us, to truly understand our condition, to understand our state. Not as one who is distant and other than us, although he is, but one who is close and near and experienced this weakness just as we have that's there. Just as we talked about last week is the book that knows us, the word of God that knows us. Here we have the son of God that knows us. He knows our condition because he has experienced it. He has entered into our state and experienced that. Getting our minds around the humanity of Christ is a challenge. It certainly has been for the, for the ages. It's important to note that the first five ecumenical councils that were called dealing with issues of the person of Christ in particular, the first one addressed his deity and sought to formulate and protect it and understand his deity. The next four primarily addressed his humanity. As the church through the centuries, those first centuries sought to understand how is it we understand him to be God. And it took four more councils to formulate and understand what does it mean that he's man? How do we understand as different heresies would come in and delude or undermine or mitigate against his humanity? And the author wants to make sure he argues for the full undiluted humanity and that it's absolutely necessary for Christ to finish, to finish and to fulfill his role as high priest. And that's what the author's argument. He is like us. He shares in our condition, in our state of weakness. The author anticipates a little bit of objection here in verse 15, with the word for in light of his greatness and transcendence, his position high and lofty one. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. He says that he uses a double negative there, right? We do not have one who is unable. And his point is, yes, we do have one. The fact is, the point is that he is not able to not sympathize. He is not able to not sympathize. In fact, he, he will. He does. He understands our condition there. And the, and the, and the author takes great pains as he works through this to, to say in every respect, you see that qualifier, that descriptor there has been tempted as we are, and yet he concludes without sin. So he has entered into our weakness. What does it exactly mean to be human? 
Well, I would give you that one of the best definitions to be human is to be weak. That it's defined, it's understood in the sense of weakness. That we are finite. That we're fragile. As much as we think ourselves strong, we know that we are not. doesn't take, but... For me, the last 10 days of a flu to put me and realize how weak I really am. For others of you who have suffered much greater to realize how weak we really are. That's the reality of what it means to be human. It's not sin to be weak. It's not sin to be weak, but it's in our weakness that we are most susceptible to sin. It's in our weakness and experience and those limitations in our lives that we're most susceptible to give in to looking for and trusting something other in those moments, it was Israel and their time in the wilderness when they were hungry and they were thirsty that they sinned. It's us in the same periods of time when we find our limitations and we come up against them that we are prone to sin. And it's Jesus himself who stepped into our weakness and experienced that and experienced temptation to a degree that we can't imagine. Physical weakness, social pressures, abuse, limitations, deficiencies. He experienced that. For us, with us, to sympathize, to be able to understand our condition, to step into it. And we can understand that his entire life would have been a a sense of temptation because we know that what it's like day in and day out. But scripture gives us several places where there's a, a concentration where it's highlighted the kind of temptation that he went through, what he had to struggle and go through. One, and the first one is, is, is in the wilderness, his 40 days in the wilderness following his his um, baptism by John, he goes, he's brought into the wilderness and there to suffer in his 40 days of fasting and being with the father. The tempter comes and tempts him based upon his physical limitations that he is a, he's brought on himself, that he himself would step into. And of course, the temptations of the stones into bread addressed his limitations and his weakness to throw yourself down off of this and you will be protected. And then, of course, the bowing down to Satan himself all remind us that these temptations are at the heart of his identity, the heart of his mission. But most of all, it questions and ask the question, will he trust the father in his weakness, in his limitations? Will he trust the father or will he take things and matters into his own hands? Will he step into the situation and Exert his will instead of submitting to the father here like Adam, like Israel in the past. Would he fail? He would not. We can also see a picture in the the garden as he comes in Gethsemane, as he's there on the threshold of the cross, seeing what he would be called to do. Sweat, great drops of blood as he wrestled and struggled through that and the questions are real that he asked. If there's any other way that this could pass for me, this cup I could get beyond this, please do it. Please take this away. But at every turn and every question as he asked it, asked to the Father, is not my will, but your will be done. He submitted there and we see he would be completely faithful. He would experience our weakness in a profound way. What we feel as human beings he, was, he is aware, he is caring, he saw, he cared, he touched, he wept. He was angry, he was frustrated, he was confused even. We see all that a part of that. He wrestled in profound ways with his path, with his course that was ordained for him. And yet in everything he didn't sin. 
In no way did he waver from his trust. The questions themselves are not sin. The questions are real. And yet the questions are submitted to God, his father, and he was faithful and so is able to save. He was faithful when Israel was not. And at every point, he trusted and submitted himself to the father. So he identifies with us. He recognizes us. He has shared our condition. But now the question for us is this. This came up in our Bible study is, how can he understand our condition if he's never sinned? If is sin necessary for him to understand to truly enter into our condition? Does he need to we understand this, right? It's like, how can he under, really understand us? Does he, doesn't he have to fail? Don't, doesn't one have to fail or have fallen and, and truly to, to do that? What we think is temptation necessarily leads to sin because we can't imagine anything else. We sin so often and so easily. We don't withstand very well. And so we think somehow, surely, To really sympathize, he must have sinned. But the answer is no. To truly sympathize and understand the full weight, the full pressure and challenge and temptation of sin, one must retain, be, prevent themselves from doing that, not give in to that. Because he didn't yield to temptation as we have, he has experienced temptation in ways and degrees that we can't. And you see that, right? The, the pressure as it's ramped up there in the wilderness as the, as the tempter came throughout his life, the greater the pressure, the greater the understanding of what sin is, the greater the understanding of temptation. C.S. Lewis says this very well, very often quoted passage in Mere Christianity as he describes this temptation. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like for an hour. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find our, our strength, the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He goes on to say he's the only realist. Because he experienced it to the full, he indeed understands. He can understand our condition. In fact, he understands it much more than we do. He understands temptation much better. So we see we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, though he wasn't in sin. He himself didn't sin. So what? how does that help? How does it help knowing that we have a high priest who is transcendent, who is standing in the heavenlies, who is there and really relates to our condition. He knows. He has tasted. He has experienced weakness. He has seen temptation. He has seen the enticement of it, of the lies of the enemy, and he has experienced it. How does that help us as we sit here today? How does it help us continue on our profession of faith? How does it help us to stand in a couple of ways, probably lots of ways? One, we know that we're not alone. We know that we're not alone. We know that the one who represents us, the one who is our advocate, is with us. He is not distant in the sense that he doesn't understand us. He meets our needs exactly according to our need 
because he knows that he has experienced that. And so he represents us. He advocates for us there in the throne room to bring us his mercy and his grace to provide for that. But also to, to frame it in this way, to frame it in through the lens of verses 12 and 13, this instrument of the word of God that's cutting and exposing and sharp and opens up who we are. The one whose gaze pierces our soul and reveals all that's there. He sees and it's ugliness. He sees who we are and our vileness and our brokenness and our helplessness. This one that stands as our judge, as he sees all that's there, he understands. He's sympathetic to us. He knows better the nature and temptation of sin. The one who cuts, the one who divides, the one who exposes who we are is also the one that intercedes. He's the one who intercedes and understands us. And so we have a picture of the one who represents us as a picture of rest, that he knows us well. Even as he sees our lives and opens it to us and exposes it to ourselves and to him. Here's the beauty. As he sees who we really are, he looks. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't look away. He doesn't. He's not aghast. He's not disgusted. He's not surprised with what he sees. He looks with a piercing gaze that sees clearly, but he understands. And he stands there with us and he invites us in. He says, yes, I see that. I'm not surprised. I understand it all too well. He looks and sees. And more than that, he provides mercy and grace to meet us. To meet what is exposed to us to not just understanding, but to truly be able to move beyond that. And so the author says, you need to see this. This is who this high priest is. He sympathizes and he gives you what you need. He understands you and he provides this exactly what you need. He's your advocate for you. And yet he calls you even further. He says to draw near. This grace and mercy is present as we draw near. And so the question then as we as we look at this is how is it that we are empowered? How is it we receive the means here, the sympathetic and our transcendent high priest says, I want to provide for you what you need to stand what you need to be able to hold fast your profession of faith, what you need to make it home in spite of the enemies, in spite of the barriers that lie within and without. And he goes on to say in verse 16 to describe this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. These are the means, he says, draw in, draw close and this imagery here, right, it's, it's high priestly imagery. It's, it's the temple imagery. It's the very presence of God that he invites us to draw into, to draw near. And, the, of course, the Old Testament, again, the category we have of the temple being the very presence of God and, and the worshipers there, that certain ones could enter in so far. Others, the priests could enter in a little bit further. But the high priest alone could enter into the very holy of holies. And we have a picture here of this nearness of God that that the Old Testament, as it sets it up, you couldn't come in without sacrifice. The high priest himself would come with great care and great fear with his own sin needed to be dealt with first before he entered into the presence of God. We understand that this picture of this throne of grace that we're being invited to here is the fullness. It's the completion of this mercy seat from the Old Testament that the high priest would enter into and he would sprinkle the blood of the atonement upon it to 
deal with the sins of the people, albeit in token, where Jesus finishes and completes that work on the cross. He is the high priest that represents us, that that makes a way for us to come near to God. Matthew records the rending of the veil, right? The the curtain just after his death. We see this picture of all kinds of wild things are happening and people are coming out of the graves in that setting. And Matthew says, and the veil was torn. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. The curtain itself was several feet thick. And it was to prevent people from entering in. That torn veil demonstrates the work of Christ, demonstrates the transcendent and sympathetic high priest who would enter in now, now makes a way for us to draw near. And that's what the author says. I want you to get this. The way that you enjoy the resources that are available here is by coming in. It's by drawing near to the throne of grace. And you will enjoy, you will gain mercy and grace as you do that. And he gives us even the, the command and the, and the response or the, re, the resources that are available are connected together. And what we have here is not a formula for getting the resources. We have as a relationship that's being described here. This drawing near is a picture of, of relationship, of drawing near in relationship with him. And he says to draw near. Several things to pull out of this, of, of understanding how it is that we gain these resources. First of all, we draw near to this throne of grace. The throne of grace is a picture of power. The very presence of God. It could be used in lots of ways, but this throne now is focused. The power and the authority of the throne has a focus. It is focused on resourcing those who come to it with mercy and grace. It's the power now is made evidence, channeled, if I can use that word, in the way of, of the means of mercy and grace for us, for those who need it. To be dispensed in any way that we would need it. Whatever circumstances we have, it's available to us. This throne is available for us to come into it. I was listening to a sermon of a a pastor of note, a guy named Bill Vogler, on this passage about nine years ago. Made lots of good points. I can't use them all. But one of the points that I thought was, was helpful as we thought about this throne of grace, he said, if Christ wasn't present there at the throne of grace, having exercised his work on the cross that throne isn't a mercy a throne of grace it is rather a throne of merit it's a throne of judgment because to enter it to enter into the presence of god would mean we have to bring our own sacrifices we would have to bring our own good works we'd have to bring our own effort to be able to enter into and we know what our own merit our own effort earns us is condemnation And so it is now a throne of grace, not a throne of effort or merit or even judgment for those who find themselves pleading with this high priest and seeing that he mediates for them. So this throne of grace provides power. The the author goes on to say this throne were to to draw near continually. The the, the picture, uh, the, the, the the tense of the verb is a present tense, meaning We're to draw near on an ongoing basis whenever we have a need, day in and day out. We sang the song earlier, right? Every hour I need you. The moment we find ourselves in need or the moment we are to draw near to him, to enter into his presence, to go there at every point in time. And so it's a continual process of, of accessing God. We don't have to worry about waking him up. We don't have to worry about inconveniencing him. He is present for us and near to us. But then we have this word, right? It's translated in a number of different ways. Confidence, boldness, 
confidence, full confidence, a variety of different ways that we are to, to draw near with confidence. J.B. Phillips says it like this, we are to draw near with the fullest of confidence. Eugene Peterson, in his own way, in the message says, so let's walk right up to him and get what he's so ready to give us. There's a kind of confidence we have because of what he has done, a boldness. We can step into his presence and enjoy that. I'm not sure, as I've thought about this, I'm not sure that, that we can really grasp that. Somehow we think, at least I think, why shouldn't I have access to any person I would choose? But this is the God of the universe. I think it's difficult for us, and we fail to understand the breathtaking statement that this is, that we would have full, unmitigated, unending, bold access to the very presence of God. Let me give you an antithetical image, okay? A different one. We're in Kansas here. Think about the Wizard of Oz. Think about the four as they enter into the palace of the wizard, and you have Dorothy and then the three, you know what they are, Lion, not the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the other three. Anyway, you know, Lion and the Tin Man and the Straw Man. Do you remember how they entered? Scared to death, terrorized by one that, by the way, shouldn't be terrorized by. In every way, that picture is opposite to what this author presents for us. We enter boldly into his presence. This is an amazing understanding that the gospel brings from terror to rest, from effort and merit to grace. We no longer have to bring our own sacrifices. It's already been accomplished. The gospel alone allows sinful creatures to enter with this kinds of boldness into his presence. It appears what had happened to the readers of this is that they were being drawn away. They weren't being drawn in. They were drifting away for whatever reason, whatever's going on in their lives. We can imagine, right? Sin, unbelief, challenges, oppression, different things going on in their lives would prevent them from entering in. And the author says, let nothing draw you away. Let nothing keep you from entering into the very presence of God. The one who sees and doesn't flinch. The one who knows you so well. We come with everything that we are. Our questions, challenges, our doubts, our sin, our deceitfulness, our confusion, our loss of hope. We come to him. He invites us in. We don't have to wonder if it's too large, too small, too gross, whatever. He says, please come. A telltale sign in my own life is this. As I look at my own life that I need to draw in, that I need to draw near to him, is when I don't want to. When I find that there's some resistance or some reluctance to draw near, I don't want to read, I don't want to pray, I'd rather turn on the TV or read a book or do something else. When I find myself going there, I realize that there's something not right. It's in those moments that I most need to draw near. It's in those moments that I realize that there's a, a warning light on the dashboard in my heart that says, you need to get to the shop. You need to do something about this. You need to draw near. It's in those moments that most of all I need, and he says, invites us in. So we have a sympathetic high priest. He knows, he understands our condition. Because of that, he is able to provide this access to him. He says, draw near to me. We have these resources we draw near with confidence of grace and mercy that he'll provide for our needs in our lives. But there's one danger, one warning I want to make, and then we'll conclude. The warning is this. I think that we can misunderstand the purpose of the focus 
of the sympathy. I think we can even read through the lens of this, the kind of the backdrop of this text that they were struggling to. If we misunderstand the end or the focus, the end goal of the sympathy and the common ground that Christ shares with us, if we understand it only to remain, to keep us where we are, then our own growth will be stunted. Let me explain what I mean by that. That the fear is that we think this sympathy that we have can be just used and we can co-opt it for ourselves to leave us just as we are. Jesus' sharing in our likeness in this weakness was so that he could then help us in our weakness, but not stay in our weakness, but to grow out of it. I think the concern is that I look at my own life, my own flesh, my own self-interest, my self-pity that I'm susceptible to thinking his sympathy is to just reinforce my present position as opposed to bring me out of it, to actually enable me to be strengthened and to grow out of it. His sympathy allows him to understand us, but will never leave us in it. He will always pull us out. So sympathy is not the goal. I think it can grow this kind of idea. And this is the, the term, the words I put to it. It can kind of grow in us a poor baby Christianity that's driven by self-pity. Christ steps in, he understands, but he doesn't intend to do anything about it. And A.W. Tozer calls these sins, the self, the hyphenated sins of the self-life, as we understand ourselves. When we're driven by our own self-interest, our own self-pity, what we do is we say he sympathizes. And then what happens is we don't understand the intentions of God. And so we co-opt the sympathy and we use it for our own intentions, our own self-interest, our own self-pity. And the kind of rationale begins to go on a speculation as to what God's intentions really are. Surely God wouldn't expect me to go through this. The readers, by the way, had gone through a great deal of tragedy, losing homes and lives and jobs and much more was there. Surely he wouldn't want this, and self-pity can set in in our circumstances. Surely he wouldn't expect me to endure these things. Surely he wouldn't expect me to live unfulfilled in this area. Surely his intentions, in modern terms, are for me to be happy. And so his sympathy becomes a way by which, okay, then I'm the one that's determining the course from here. They were being tempted to walk away, their confession to, to, to abandon Instead of drawing near to the throne, they misunderstood, indeed, God's intentions. And when we misunderstand that, his, this, the intention of his sympathy, then it's detrimental to our growth. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. 5, verse 11. You see this warning, this admonition that he gives to them. And it's because they don't understand God's intentions. And you see that their growth has been stifled. That their growth here has been stunted 11 through 14 about this we have much to say but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the word of the oracles of god you need milk not solid food your growth has stunted you need milk not solid food for everyone who lives on the milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child but solid food is for the mature For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. When sympathy becomes the goal, when we misunderstand the intentions of God, when we're being driven by self-pity, then that's what happens. Our growth is stifled. 
And we become short-sighted in what he really wants for us. But you see, the, the sympathy that Christ brings when he steps and he speaks into our lives, it does real work in our souls. It does real work and real change. Yes, he understands. Yes, he understands our condition, but... There's more that he wants that he has an interest in. He meets us. He understands us in the need and the movement and our pain and our suffering and our sorrow and our doubt and fill in the blank. He meets us there. He understands us in that moment, just like as, as they would tempted to chuck it, tempted to no longer profess our faith, to give up, to abandon that, tempted to move away from the rest, tempted to set a drawing near to draw away in those moments he with tears in his eyes with scars on his own hands and his feet and his side speaks into our life and says i understand i understand how hard this is even more than you I understand the nature of temptation i understand the nation of na- nature of sin but what do you need what do you need to stand what do you need to hold firm what do you need to hold fast what do you need to strive to enter that rest i will provide for you my mercy, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power will be made perfect in weakness. So he speaks into that, the, even the ways that we would misunderstand his intentions to change us there. The author wants to, to get this picture of who he is, the great high priest who is transcendent. He is close by, he is near to us, and he provides for us all that we need. Now the author concludes with this phrase, this mercy and grace in time of need, in a timely fashion, this mercy and grace comes. And the question for us as we conclude here is, when do we receive this mercy and grace and what's it look like? When do we receive this mercy and grace and what does it look like? And this is, herein is the end of the sermon because it's the transition from what we can know and what we can and what I can say and But each one of us now, we step into our own lives and the application of this truth of his grace and mercy is now applied individually in our lives. In our limitations, in our weakness, we wrestle with, will he really come through? Is his grace and mercy really present? Will it really provide what I need when I need it? Will it really come through in a timely fashion? And I really wish I knew when. I really wish I knew what it would look like. But the answer is, yes, it will come through. And the answer is, no, I don't know. In fact, if we look at the past and we see, well, it happened like this and in this way, and we try to recycle that, we find, no, that's not going to work either. He will do what he wants in the way that he chooses. And yet his grace and mercy will be present at just the right time in our lives. Of course, we have the privilege of coming to his presence of, of, if you will, pouring our hearts out to him, of asking him in our need, in our situations, would you do this? Would you meet my need? And we lay them in his feet at the throne room there. And we say, your will be done. We say, will you provide what I need? And we need to be careful not to instruct. We need to be careful not to demand. We get to ask. We get to petition before the king and his promises, I will operate, I will care, I will respond to this as you come near. I will pour my grace and mercy out upon you, my time and my way. Let me conclude with a short story, short account from The Hiding Place. 
story, a book, you might have read it, might have heard of it, Corey ten Boone, a Dutch uh, a family that was resisted Nazi Germany, their occupation in Holland, and, and they did that by, by um, harboring, by housing Jews and keeping them safely. The book is about that story. It's a powerful story that is presented. And here she describes the timeliness of God's grace in, in this account. By the way, the, it, it starts, they've just visited a home where a, an infant has died. And her family is, and she's commenting on this experience. She said, I stood there staring at, at the tiny and moving form with my heart thudding strangely against my ribs. Nolly, her sister, always braver than I, stretched out her hand and touched the ivory white cheek. I longed to do it too, but hung back afraid. For a while, curiosity and terror struggled in me. At last, I put one finger on the small, curled hand. It was cold. Cold as we walked back to home. Cold as I washed for supper. Cold even as in the snug, uh, gas-lit dining room. Between me and each familiar face around the table crept those icy fingers. For all Tantillon's talk about it, death was only a word to me. Now I knew what it really meant. If the baby, then Mama, the father, and Betsy. Still shivering with cold, I followed Nolly up to our room and crept into the bed beside her. At last we heard Father's footsteps winding up the stairs. It was the best moment of every day when he came in to tuck us in. We never fell asleep until he had arranged the blankets in a special way and laid his hand for a moment on each head. Then we tried not to move even a toe. But that night, as he stepped through the door, I burst into tears. I need you, I sobbed. You can't die. You can't. Beside me, in my bed, Nolly sat up. We went to see Mrs. Hogue, she explained. Corey didn't even eat her supper or anything. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey began gently. When you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? Why, um, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise Father in Heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us, um, when the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and you'll find the strength you need just in time. For those of you who have been there in that moment of time when God's grace and mercy Explodes in the scene out of nowhere. You, you know what that's like to experience his sustenance, his strength, his foundation in our lives. That he would in, indeed strengthen us in those moments. But the grace didn't eliminate the, the heartache. It didn't eliminate the challenges in that circumstance. But it was real. And it sustains in a real kind of way. And it comes at just the right time. And the author wants them to know and he wants us to know that because of our great high priest who has passed through the heavens as we enter in, we are able to receive that mercy and grace at just the right times. And we will find that he is sufficient, even in the midst of our weakness, that he will enable us to stand to hold fast our confession, to strive to enter that rest, to draw near, and to find that he will lead us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful this morning for this truth. And 
that you do stand our great high priest who represents us. Many of us have great needs this morning, great and small, all relative to our own lives. Suffering as a result of the reality of what it means to be human and our weakness and our limitations. And so, uh, Father, I pray for them today that this strength would be present in them, this grace and mercy would sustain and enable to stand in the midst of those challenges, whatever they might be. Father, would you strengthen the weak, those who doubt, who have questions, who wrestle with the confusion of their own minds about faith and what it looks like, who wrestle with their own sin, who wrestle with what's there, what they find, what they have, and what they don't. Would you enable them to rest in this grace and mercy? And Father, would you enable each one of us, all of us as a congregation, to endure that we would hold fast our profession in the midst of a culture that desperately fights against it. Help us to stand firm in the gospel and see it go forward like a light bringing this rest and strength and mercy and grace. And trust this week to you, anticipating what you'll do. In Jesus' name we pray.